0: Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with Sonia Richards-Ross. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Waymaker Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Sonia Richards-Ross is a retired Jamaican-American Olympic sprinter. Today, she will discuss her Olympic journey, her pivot to commentary, who her Waymakers were, and much more. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, founder of Waymaker, And today on the Waymaker Fireside Chat, we have something very special. A very special guest that happens to be an Olympic champion, an American record holder, a six-time national champion, ranked number one in the world six times, NBC broadcast analyst in track and field. And she happens to be on the popular series, The Atlanta Housewife. Sonia Richards walks. Welcome, Uh, Sonya.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Lewis. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that warm introduction. I'm so excited to be here today.
0: So we are thrilled to have you. I have been a fan of yours from the far from afar for a very long time. Thank you. So let's kind of start from the beginning,
1: yeah.
0: you were born in Jamaica.
1: Yes, I was born in Kingston, Jamaica, and have the most fond memories of my early days in Kingston. I um, actually fell in love with the sport of track and field at a really young age. I remember we had like a fun sports day when I was seven years old. And we're supposed to like run and jump and do all these things. And I beat all the girls and all the boys. And the track coach recruited me to the track team. And, you know, I'm sure everyone listening knows that track and field is the most popular sport on the island. And so, you know, as early as nine years old, I remember saying I wanted to be an Olympic champion, um, idolizing the track and field athletes that competed for Jamaica. And so really just had so much love and passion for the sport at a very young age. So so Sonia, tell
0: us why Jamaicans are so (laughs) confident about the sport. At the World Games, in Eugene, I happen to be sitting in the uh, green and gold section, all right? Right, yes, yes. And, and they are just passionate about every yeah. Jamaican athlete, no matter what event.
1: Why yeah. is that? You know, it's a really good question. I think just like anything else, Jamaica has found tremendous success in the sport. And so what I believe is that because of that, the best athletes gravitate to the sport. And so you figure on the island where obviously speed seems to be something that I always think because of our ancestry and just, you know, who we are, you know, it's just in our DNA. And so you the best athletes on the island gravitate to the sport. And Jamaicans are very proud, you know, it, it just brings us so much pride to see the impact that the athletes from that small island have had in this sport all over the world. And so they take it very seriously and it just brings me a lot of joy too to have been a little part of that history um, and to have benefited from the early resources that I had access to as a child in Jamaica.
0: And how old were you when you uh, came to America?
1: So I was 12 when um, our family migrated. My mom and dad, actually, my mom is the youngest of six siblings, and all of her eldest siblings had migrated to the States and kept telling her, you should come, you should come if you want the kids to have a great education. The earlier you get them in the school system, the better opportunities they will have to go to a great university. And so my parents, who had a great life in Jamaica, used to go to a great university, and. You know, I transitioned straight from having a lot of success on the track in Jamaica to having that same success in the United States and getting a full scholarship to the University of Texas.
0: So, Sonia, when did you know that you (laughs) were not just the average track and field athlete? At what moment of time or what race that said, no, I'm going to be something special in this
1: sport? That's a great question, Lewis. And to be very honest my dad was the one who knew it first. And I always say that my dad believed it so long and so strongly that he made me believe it too. And so I remember him telling my mom when I was nine, when I was 10, when I was 11, when I was, twelve, she's gonna be a world beater, she's gonna be the world's best. Like she's just, he's always said that. And I remember for me, the most pivotal time in my career was actually my senior year in high school. I remember going into that season, I had suffered my first injury my junior year and wasn't running as well. And I remember my dad saying to me that summer, he said, do you want to be the best? And I was like, of course, like, why else would I do this? Um, but I realized in that moment that being the best meant being intentional about it and really putting in the work. And so my senior year, I started doing a thousand sit-ups every night. I was doing stadium stairs. <laughs> I was watching film. I was doing all the things. And I had one of the most successful prep careers um, in 2002, won the Gatorade Athlete of the Year, broke the high school 400-meter record that still stands today. And for me, that was the season I realized if I really worked hard, I could be an Olympic champion.
0: Now, Sonia, I remember watching something, and you said you did a (laughs) 1,000 sit-ups. And, you know, I I, I, I always thought I was a sit-up king. All right. (laughs) So when you said, that, I said, could that be possible that somebody can do a thousand sit-ups a day? So I tried to break it the day in quarters. I said, well, maybe she can do two fifty in the morning, two fifty in the afternoon, two fifty in
1: the evening, and two fifty before you go to bed. How did you do a thousand? How did you do a thousand sit-ups a day? I used to do a thousand sit ups in about an hour setting. And so I would, after practice, I would go home and I would put my TV on and my dad would be right there with me. And eventually, my now husband, um, who at the time, obviously boyfriend, fiance, would join in and we would do. And I always say sit ups, but what I do really mean is core exercises. So I would do all different kinds of abdominal exercises, you know, sit ups, toe touches, obliques, of course, Superman's for lower back. And I would just, it would take me about an hour to do them all. And I would just do them straight, like, you know, 25, 50, 100 of different exercises until I got to a thousand. And I know people, it always sounded crazy to people, but I always felt like whenever you want to do something great, you make some big commitment, some huge sacrifice. And I always felt like that was it for me. It was like, I know if I have a strong core, when I step on the track, I would have believed that I had done more than anybody else. And so to me, that was always that thing that gave me that edge.
0: So. How many years did you do a thousand sit ups?
1: And a thousand sit ups for probably, so I started when I was in high school in 2002 and competed through 2016. And in 2012, I did 2000 uh, every day. <laughs> so, well, five days a week. So I was doing that for how long is that? Since so 2002. That was like what? 14, 14 years? 14 years. Yeah, 14 years. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. That's impressive. You You deserve a gold medal for just that. <laughs>
1: Just for that. Thank you. No one has ever offered me that. So I take that. I appreciate that. So you leave high school, you go on to college. What school yeah. did you go to? The University of Texas in Austin. That, 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 that's a
0: little famous school, Longhorn. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: and,
0: and you ran for the University of Texas and uh, you had some some success there. Yes. And when did you realize that you were world class? Yeah. What point? Yeah.
1: So, my actually, my first, my freshman year at the University of Texas, I made the world championship team for Team USA and went on to run the 400 and the 4x4 relay and won gold, anchoring, anchoring at 18 years old Team USA to gold in Paris. And so, like I said, I think my senior year in high school was when I really believed I could be world class. And so by the time I was a freshman in college, I was already moving like a world-class athlete and training, you know, really aggressively and very intentionally to be a part of Team USA. So, you know, my my first two years in college, I think, were incredible years of preparation for my later years as a pro. I went pro early after my my sophomore season. I became a professional track and field athlete. But those two years at Texas, I think, were very crucial to my success and, and my longevity in the sport.
0: Sandra, track and field teaches people more than about a sport. What are some of the life lessons that you've learned from the many years of competing?
1: (laughs) I always say that sports and specifically track and field have been my greatest life teachers. And a few of the lessons that I have learned, and I, you know, probably one of the most important ones. Especially as an Olympian is about delayed gratification. I think that there's nothing that there's nothing like the track and field experience where you are literally training every single day for an opportunity that comes once every four years. You know, it's really, really hard to wrap your mind around that level of commitment, dedication and focus, and you only get one shot at it. you only get one shot at it. and um, and so that has taught me a lot about life, you know, like a lot of times, even in, my, in being becoming a mom and becoming an entrepreneur, even with becoming a reality TV star, you're putting in work, you're doing things that nobody's going to see that feels in the moment, very arduous, <laughs> very challenging. You get knocked down, you have failures, but if you can stay focused on the long-term goal you know, that's where the reward is. And I think that has been one of the things that has truly grounded me on my journey in life is knowing that even with my son, the investments I make now in him, the love I pour into him, the lessons I pour into him now are going to pay off way down the road. You know, the efforts I put into my business now, I don't see them now. You know, I'm working, working, working. I'm not getting paid out of my business, but I know that the effort I put in now, it will pay off down the road. And I think that for me is probably the most consistent and most important lesson I learned, especially as a track and field athlete.
0: So you know, for a long time, uh, they said that women can't have it all. You you, you can't be, um, <laughs> yeah. you can't have a career. You can't be a wife. Mm-hmm. They said you can't have
1: all of that at the same time. Right.
0: You've got to prove people wrong. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, you know, in the famous words of Portia Williams, I'll say, who said that? <laughs> <laughs> um, you you know, <laughs> <laughs> um you know, it 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 I I you certainly can. You certainly can do all of the things. But I will say this, it does it does, it does come at a cost, right? Like it's not always bells and whistles. Obviously, when I'm being the best. Commentator, I'm not being the best mom, right? Cause I'm not at home, but how I have been able to find joy and peace in having it all is giving my best to that thing that I'm doing right now. So when I'm in mommy mode, my phone is off. I am with my son and I'm very intentional about the time I spend with him. And that's very fulfilling to me. And when I'm working, I'm very fulfilled by the fact that I'm doing the things that I'm passionate about and I'm giving back to the world and I'm setting an example for my son. So I think you can have it all, but um, you you do have to prioritize and you have to be okay with not always being perfect at everything and not always being present for everything. And that for me has been how I feel like I've been able to balance and, and be at peace with all the great joys I have in my life right now.
0: Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Sonia, I interviewed Dr. Madupe, uh Akinola. She is a professor at uh, Columbia University, and she teaches how to deal with stress.
1: Mm. Is that one already out? Because I, to... <laughs> I need to watch that. It's, it's, it's,
0: it's coming out. Okay, and good. One of <laughs> is, is that you can't run from stress, all yeah. right? It's it's going to exist. Uh, Matter of fact, it shows up at the at the least uh, opportune times. So it's 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 going to show up. How do you and how did you deal with stress? Because being a top athlete, yes, competing is stress
1: all the time.
0: All the time,
1: all the time. So I'll be very honest with you. Um, and you know, we talked a little bit about this before we started our conversation about how little talk there was prior to the brandon marshall's the simone biles the naomi asaka's about the mental toughness that it takes and the mental toll (laughs) that it takes to be an elite athlete right like we were expected to just push through no matter how you were feeling mentally to go out there and perform and so in the early part of my career lewis i struggled You know, unknowingly with the mental pressures that I mostly put on myself to Mm -hmm. always be perfect, to always win, to always excel. And so in the latter half of my career, I started working with a sports psychologist, and that literally changed the game for me. It literally changed the game for me uh, as he helped to give me real tools to deal with the stressors that came with being the best in the world and always having that target on my back. And so for me, a prime example of dealing with one of the most stressful experiences that I had in my career was in 2012, after failing to win gold in 2008, um, after being the favorite, being undefeated in every single race except for the Olympic final, preparing for 2012, as you can imagine, was daunting, you know, because most Olympic athletes go to one Olympics. This would have been my third and possibly my last and my last opportunity to win an individual gold medal. And I remember some of the the things that I did to help with stretch, I did a lot of visualization, a lot of visualization. I would see myself crossing that finish line first. I would walk through the experience of what it was like to be in the warm up area with the women, to walk through that tunnel, to step on that track in front of 90,000 people in person, and of course, millions live, and to cross that finish line first. And visualization helped me a lot. And believe it or not, people don't understand the power of their breath. Like he taught me how to, in the moments when the nerves were coming and the monkey chatter was coming, and you'll see it if you go back and watch my Olympic final, I put my hand right on my stomach and I breathe into my stomach and I ground myself with my breath, remembering that I am prepared for this moment. I am the best and I'm equipped to win this race. And so between visualization, positive affirmations, and the power of my breath, those were the three things that I still use today that helped me to manage when I feel stressed and overwhelmed.
0: So you, you had this successful career in track and field. Mm-hmm. And then you reinvented yourself. Yeah. We spent a lot of times talking about when do athletes know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's time. And it's time to hang it up and move on. When did you know, or did you have it planned out? Yeah. Years prior Mm -hmm. to saying that was it?
1: Yeah, I feel like I'm one of the few athletes (laughs) that um, planned my retirement prior. And I think it was because I had the luxury of being in the sport for 13 years and seeing a lot of people unceremoniously being forced to leave the sport with no plan, with absolutely no plan. And I remember growing up, my dad used to always say to me, never be one dimensional. And I remember although I was having all this success on the track. He said, if you can be dominating the track, you should be dominating the classroom. There's no difference. And there's no reason that you can't be doing both. And so I remember in the final two or three years of my career, I had a really bad injury to my right big toe. So I knew that I would eventually have to stop running because my body would no longer allow me to do it. I started to think of what else am I great at? What what other skills have I honed as an Olympic athlete that I can go out here and do and I can show to the world? And, And I just started to network and meet people and started to see myself as more than the athlete, which is really challenging because when you're in it, that's all that everyone tells you to do, eat, sleep, breathe track and field, eat, sleep, breathe sports. And so it's counterintuitive to what it takes to be great. But I'm so grateful that the last two years of my career, I started to think about like, you know, what am I passionate about? What am I good? I knew I loved television. I knew I wanted to write a book. I knew I wanted to do all of these things. And when the opportunities presented itself, Louis, I was ready and I was blessed to be able to make a very smooth transition into the NBC booth and beyond.
0: I think people see like, well, she was an athlete. Does she have a degree in broadcast journalism? (laughs) You know,
1: how, how did that happen to get the NBC spot, which is a premium spot? It is, it is. I'm the first woman that was um, in the booth in like 10 or 15 years uh, prior to to me getting there. Um, and so a couple of things, when I was coming up in the sport, my dad used to, and I say my dad a lot, he was, you know, thank God for good parents. <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming he's your way maker. <laughs> yes, my, no, 100%. My dad is, was my way maker for sure. And so when I started competing, my dad used to have me watch footage of my races and my interviews. And he was like, look, you gotta slow down. Like, you know, people are only gonna see you for 50 seconds. This is the chance for me to get to know you and see your personality. And so I took my interviewing as seriously as I did my racing. And, you know, really always thinking of myself as a brand and thinking of myself holistically. And so I remember my final race in 2016, I'm on the track at the Olympic trials and Lewis Johnson, not my now colleague says to me on the track, he's like, you've done all these great things. What can we expect from you next? And I said, well, Lewis, um, I want to start a family. I'd like to write a book and I'd love to start commentating. And literally, Lewis, NBC calls me the next morning, like, were you serious about that? Do you really? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And I was in the booth the next day. I was, I called the Olympic trials, the same event I had just dropped out of because of injury in hopes of making it to the Olympics in Rio. I went anyway as an NBC broadcaster.
0: (laughs) Wow. So so you literally spoke it in the truth.
1: Literally spoken into existence. (laughs)
0: Wow, that's, that's, that's an amazing story.
1: Thank you. So
0: you're NBC analyst, yeah. and then you get into reality TV.
1: I know. Tell I
0: know, us about that I next <laughs> transition.
1: Well, the next transition wasn't as straightforward and as clear, but I say this, I always say yes to life. And so I actually was in Atlanta filming an incredible show with Will Packer. Will Packer had put together a series called Central Lab, which was the first entertainment news magazine show hosted by two women of color. And so myself and Julissa Bermudez were tapped to host that show. And it was this was like dream job for me. I'm Like, yes, I'm getting to host doing pop culture, the crossover from sports. And it was just amazing. And then COVID happened. And so we filmed the first season, COVID. We didn't film for nine months because of COVID. When the show came back around, they tried to package it a different way. And it just didn't work. You know, a lot of things didn't work in the world at that time. And so I was in Atlanta filming that show. And I guess my name got on the radar of the producers of The Real Housewives of Atlanta. And so when they reached out to me, I was like, I'm not sure. You know, I wasn't sure about it. But there's something about me that always says yes first. And then I kind of, you know, figure it out. And it was just a very smooth, you know, process. They interviewed me and then we did, you know, and I was like, okay, put it on the back burner. We're doing something else. Then the next step happened. And the next thing I knew I was, you know, tapped to be a peach. And I just thought it would have been a, I just thought and still think it's a great opportunity for people to see me in a different light. I also feel that for shows like that. You know, I want to be what I want to see on television. And so to be able to bring my Black love, my Black excellence, you know, all of that to television, I thought was a great opportunity. And I'm still very grateful to be on that platform.
0: Well, congratulations. You're doing a good job there. So I want you to go back and think about your 18-year-old self and say, what do you wish you knew at 18 that you know today?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's always such a good question. Um, and I think, I think when I was 18, I was still very unsure of who I was. I wasn't sure of like how things were gonna turn out. And I was in this rush to be great and to dominate on the track. And you know, I think as I look back on it now, if I could have reassured myself that everything I needed was already within me, and that I could slow down, enjoy the journey, um, and you know, and and really, really feel the experiences that I that I was having. You know, I think as an athlete, it's like you're just like rushing through and you know, onto the next championship, onto the next title. Um, but as I look back now, I'm like, man, those days were incredible. And I always had everything I needed. Uh, to be great. And, um, and I was going to make it, I was going to, I was going to hit my goals. You know, I didn't have to sink too low or soar too high. It was like, you know, just kind of sitting in that pocket and feeling and experience and everything. I think that's what I would have told myself. And that's the thing I wish I would have done more of.
0: Final question for you, Sonia. Talk to the athletes out there about being able to take the greatness that they found on the track the field, the court, and be great in other things in life. What are those key things yes. that you know for sure yes. that made you great in track that also made you great in these other endeavors?
1: So, so I would say two things, Lewis. I would say on that question, I think it's a very important question. I would say the the first thing is to acknowledge when you're an athlete or whatever it is that is similar to that is that all blessings aren't meant to last a lifetime. And the minute I realized that track and field was a blessing that was for a time and, um, and it was a setting a foundation for me that I would be able to stand on to do all the other things. It freed me up to go out and try other things. Um, and so the first gift I want to give the listener is that transition, It's scary, but it's exciting. And it's okay. It's okay to move on from something that you gave your heart to, something that you loved all of your life. It's okay to give yourself permission to do that. Um, And then, you know, the second part of it, and actually, sorry, there's three things that I want to say about that. You know, the second part of it is that every single thing that you're learning as you're developing as an athlete is absolutely preparing you for real life. You know, the idea of setting goals, of being disciplined, of bouncing back from failures, all of those things have helped me in entrepreneurship and in parenting and, and in, in becoming a mom. So just know that all of those skills that you have honed actually will really help you as you transition from athlete to that next thing. And then the final thing that um just kind of set my mind was um, it's okay to let go knowing that the work uh, I had one other thing that came to my mind that I wanted to share on this topic and it just slipped my mind. So sorry about that. Um no problem? If it comes back, then I can piece it together. But um, And um, darn it, it was good. It was a good one too. And it just yeah. <laughs> slipped my mind. <laughs> Mommy well, brain. <laughs>
0: well, well, your dad was a way maker for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who were some other way makers for you?
1: Oh, man, you know who I had. I've had some tremendous waymakers for me. You know, as an athlete, I, I, I sometimes, especially now, as I've moved on from sport and I'm a parent, I'm like the commitment that my coaches made to my career and my success are is just mind blowing. You know, from my coaches in Jamaica to my coaches at high school and college, but in particular, my professional coaches, especially not just my track coach, Coach Clyde Hart, but I had a strength coach. His name is Bruce Johnson, who, when I say he went above and beyond the call of duty to be there for me mentally, spiritually, and physically to help me be great. I I know that I would not have gotten to where I am without people like him who just bought into my dream. You know, it's like, I got to stand on the podium, I got to stand on the track, yet his level of of commitment always matched mine. My mom, my mom, who sacrificed so much to help me on my journey, she was, she started Um, working out and brought me on board to weightlifting and training very early on. She was my manager. She traveled all over the world with me my entire career. And so absolutely, she was one of my waymakers. And then, you know, a lot of the role models like Jackie Joyner-Kersey, who I was very blessed to meet early on in my career, who would send me encouraging words and who, you know, set this example of excellence that I was able to, to follow. You know, people like that, you know, are the reasons that I was able to have the success that I had and why I'm really intentional about pouring into the next generation and showing them what's possible. Um, Because if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I'm just grateful for the people that did that for me.
0: Well, thank you, Sonya. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you. Uh, Very exciting, very inspirational. We appreciate you coming on the Waymaker Fireside Chat today. And we continue to wish you success in all of your endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was
1: awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Sonia Richards Ross. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. And don't forget to claim your Waymaker Journal at waymakerjournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast to get notifications each time you release an episode.